Hello and welcome to Paul Talk. Um, today um, I'm joined by Martha and my Hello. name is Kian. We're both on the Government and Politics Society at UCC. Um, this is both our first time on... Yeah, first time doing a show. UCC 98.3 FM. Um, both first time on Paul Talk. So forgive us if there are any um, issues, mishaps. mishaps. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, Martha, what's your role on, on the Government and Politics Society? So I'm the Vice Finance Officer and basically I just help the Finance Officer in dealing with all the accounts, applying for funding. Kind of just easy enough, kind of really. That, that's that's yeah. cool, that's cool. And um, I guess what I'd ask next is um, what, what year of your course are you in and, and why did you choose Government and Political Science? I'm in third year government and political science in UCC and um, I guess I chose the course because I was always interested in politics and I really wanted to do something that I was passionate in and enjoy and I got rejected from law as well so that is a little part of it. I think uh, government and political sciences is much more fun than law Definitely. anyways. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and um, what is your position on the committee? Um, so I'm an ordinary committee member. Um, a bit of a, a a jack jack of all trades, I think, um, <laughs> is how I would put ordinary committee member. Um, and I'm a first year government political science student, so I guess a year ago I would have been busy preparing for my um prees, which I actually can't believe that's a year ago. Um. Yeah, it's been three years since I've sat the leaving cert and time flies. <laughs> I think we both still, I definitely still have leaving cert nightmares anyways. I don't think they'll ever leave. No, they never really fully leave you once once you go through it. It'll remain with you for the rest of your life. Just the dream of, <laughs> oh no, I've done no study for my yeah. Irish exam. What will I do? <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I picked government and political science because I've always had an interest in, in advocacy work and and in how governments and systems work and um, I guess would like to work in an area, um, in a policy-driven area. Um, I'm particularly interested in, um, I guess, agricultural policy and would like to kind of focus my master's um, in that area. But I guess, Martha, I'd ask you what your kind of, if you have a plan for the future, what does it's, that look like? It's always a question, a tough question, because... It's hard to plan what you'll be doing this time next year, even never mind five years time. But Or tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I think I definitely want to do a master's. I'm hoping to do human rights law, maybe something in that area or diplomacy. Not really fully sure yet. Um, still exploring my options because I still have a bit of time before I have to apply. But exactly. definitely master's first and then maybe we'll see what happens after that. And I guess... Something I've noticed um, as a first year student is that there isn't much um, uptake in a lot of UCC societies. And I've been told that this year particularly has been a bit kind of low in terms of yeah. um, interaction between UC between um, students and, and just societies as a whole. Um, so I guess the UCC Gopal Society will have our AGM um, this semester. Yeah, it's usually towards the end of March, April. The March, and I April. thought it's early April, anyways, before exams kick in. Oh, we won't even go yeah. there. <laughs> and um, what would you say to 
a student that would be interested in joining um, the committee uh, and getting more involved with with GovPol? If you're like a bit shy about joining a committee, I'd say just go for it because the amount of people you meet through committees and the amount of friendships that you make, it's it's something really unique and you get to experience a lot as well and you get to do really fun things, go on cool trips. I mean, I think one of the main drivings for a lot of people joining committees is the free trip, well, not free trips, but <laughs> society-funded. Society-funded <laughs> trips. And um, what do you have a highlight of your involvement with UCC Guffall so far? Um, I only joined this year, so I'm kind of new to it but last year I really enjoyed the trip to Stormont and going up on the train to Belfast it was really it was an experience wow and what what was like did you meet some MLAs um Um, we met Diane Dodds the DUP um for North Down and it was um it was an interesting experience to say the least and it was really insightful as to the Northern Irish Assembly and how it works and how it's not running for three years now. Yeah, it's it's, it's not running with a, a serious amount yeah. of time. And I guess there's maybe some potential that the DUP, DUP will come back. Yeah, to they it. keep um, having a couple of rounds of talks and then it falls apart and then it's just constant steps and stages into it. Yeah, exactly. So we'll have to see where this goes throughout 2024. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to go into um, a quick song. Um, so yeah, we'll be back after um, after uh, this one. As you promised me that I was more than all the miles combined You must have had yourself a change of heart like halfway through the drive Because your voice trailed off exactly as you passed my exit sign Kept on driving straight and left our future to the right Now I am stuck between my anger and the blame that I can't face And memories or something even smoking weed is not replaced And I am terrified of weather cause I see you when it rains Doc told me to travel, but there's COVID on the planes And I love Vermont, but it's the season of the sticks And I saw your mom, she forgot that I existed And it's half my fault, but I just like to play the victim I'll drink alcohol till my friends come home for Christmas And I'll dream each night of some version of you That I might not have, but I did not lose Now you're tracks and one pair of shoes and I'm split in half but that'll have to do so I thought that if I piled something good and all my bad that I could cancel out the darkness I inherited from dad no I am no longer funny cause I missed the way you laughed you once called me forever now you still can't call me back and I Christmas and I'll dream each night of some virgin of you that I 
but it's the season of the sticks And I shock your mom, she forgot that I existed And it's half my fault, but I just like to play the victim I'll drink alcohol till my friends come home for Christmas And I'll dream each night of some virgin of you That I might not have, but I did not lose Now your tired tracks in one pair of shoes And I'm spinning half And we're back. So that was Stick Season from um, Noah Kahan. Is it pronounced Kahan? I think it is. Um, Martha, did did he say that Dublin was in the UK recently somewhere? I remember seeing it somewhere. Um, someone posted it up on Instagram, I think. But he put on the back of tour merch that it was Dublin, United Kingdom and not Dublin, Ireland. And then... I think he, he corrected it after. He did, he did apologise. <laughs> um, I think he, he owed us an apology, to be fair. Um, but I guess this is Paul Talk. So um, as one of the first shows of the year, there is a lot coming up in 2024 for Irish politics. Um, I think first, first this will be my first year to yeah. be able to vote. It's my well. first year as well, because I, I turned 18 just after... The 2020 election, so I just missed out on the vote. So, oh wow, okay, first so first time voting, very exciting. Um, so the March eight referendums. Um, Martha, are, would yeah. you be able to kind of give a bit of um insight into the listeners as to what there are two questions being posed on March eighth, and, yeah. and and what they um surround. So um, the two referendums on Article 41 of Bonorctonaheran will take place on the 8th of March, um, the 39th Amendment of the Constitution on the family, and then the 40th Amendment on Constitution on care will. So, so from what I can understand, it's uh, one of the questions is on expanding the definition of family. Um, to include more than just a woman's places in the home, but focusing it more on family and caregivers as well. Yeah, I think there's there's um a part of it is on um defining family as something broader than just um marry, you know, between um people that are married and also um recognizing care in more gender neutral term um rather than maybe what is uh largely considered misogynistic language in the constitution at the moment um it's very outdated it out, long needs a change outdated i think yeah. is 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 the correct word and i guess moving towards to june um is definitely going to be a busy month for irish politics as well <laughs> um and yeah martha would you like to run through maybe the local and european yeah, elections so, that are coming up um, with the local elections coming up there um 949 councillors will be elected across 166 local elector areas in Ireland sometimes the locals are an indication of how the next general election could go but that's not always the case the party that might come top in the local election might not win the general election um but it's interesting this year that the two are so close together so it'll be interesting to see how it will play out it's it's rumored currently that the election will take place the general election will take place in October which will be just after the budget. So 
it'd be interesting to see what in the budget will benefit people and how people will vote as an impact of the budget. Exactly, because I guess to run through some polls that I have here at the moment, um, it's putting Sinn Féin at about 30% um, for uh, national parliament voting intention and Fine Gael at 20%, Fianna Fáil 17%, Social Democrats 5%, and then Labour, Solidarity, People for For Profit, The Greens and a all on 3%, with Independence and others at 16%. I think it's also interesting to note that we do, I believe, have a new political party, yeah. um, Independent Ireland. Um, Michael Collins TD for Cork Southwest is the leader um, and I think there's there are um, they have two seats in government um, at the moment. Um, Michael Collins TD and Richard O'Donoghue TD, I, I, I believe. Um, I think I'm, I'm uh, correct in in, in saying. Um, and they they uh, have broadcasted their party as a party that seeks to provide an alternative to voters that are unhappy with the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael Green Party coalition but are uncomfortable voting for Sinn Féin. So I think it'll be also interesting to see how yeah, that... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how um, they will do in com- compared to the SOC Dems, who to many would be the alternative to Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens, it- and to those who aren't comfortable in voting for Sinn Féin, because Labour at the moment don't seem to be... They seem to be struggling in the polls lately. Yeah, and 3% is quite... It's hard to see how they will recover from that. And also as well, I I think the housing and healthcare will definitely dominate the election campaign, as well as um, the fact that 22,000 Irish people applied for an Australian visa last year. 22,000? Yeah. Wow. And I think we all know a couple of people going to Australia at the moment. Yeah, there's loads of people going to Canada, New Zealand... And I think that would play a lot into the election campaign, just trying to um, feed into trying to, in the government's mindset, try and bring some of these people back to Ireland. Exactly. I guess appealing to to young voters. Um, But I guess aside from housing and health, what do you think are the major topics that that could form part of the debate um, this year? I think a small part of the debate could be centred around... um, Gaza and the current conflict in the Middle East and how it relates to Ireland and people might be um, inclined to vote based on how parties align themselves and how they're dealing with the situation on hand. Absolutely. I think um, Israel, the, the Israel-Hamas conflict will definitely play um, a small factor in, in, in yeah. the upcoming um elections but um yeah i think we're going to take another quick break um so this is i don't know um this is uh murder on the dance floor by from sophie ellis bexter
Um, so that was uh, Merge on the Dance Floor, Sophie Ellis Spector. Oh, I love that song. Um, for a um, Monday afternoon, I'm not sure. But <laughs> anyways, so our, our next topic of conversation, I guess. Now, not we're not going to start out quite politics, but um, Ireland has selected its Eurovision 2024 entry, Bambi yeah. Thug, with the song Doomsday Blue and held its national final Eurosong last Friday night. Martha is an avid Eurovision fan, so she's going to give us a bit of a rundown. I think. Um. So, Bambi Thug topped both the national jury and the televote, and effectively is the act we are going to send to Malmo this year. It is quite chaotic. Com- it's, it's it's witchy, yeah. I think, is the word. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very mysterious, kind of. It's different but, yeah. for Ireland, um, in terms of compared what to what we've sent the last ten years. It's very different, and as well, Ireland has a really bad qualification record. We've only qualified once in the last ten years, so it'll be interesting to see how that will change this year, especially given. That we are currently 16th favourite to win in the odds, which is higher than normal. Higher than normal. <laughs> um, and I guess from a um, more politics perspective, there's been a lot of discussion around Israel-Palestine and how that plays into Eurovision this year. Um, Martha, do you think that Eurovision is sometimes more about politics than it is about music? I think definitely sometimes it's a bit more about politics than it is about music especially if you look at the block voting and how votes are kind of transferred especially greece and cyprus 12 points go to greece Greece. (laughs) (laughs) every year (laughs) it's the same and um it'd be the same for a lot of the different blocks as well the nordic blocks tend to always vote for each other and some of the baltic states always kind of give some points to each other as well so it'll be interesting this year to see how it'll play out in terms of um, what's going on in Gaza right now and the war between Israel and, and Hamas. And um, currently Iceland is favourite to win, which they've never won before. So Yeah, Iceland only has a population of around 300,000. Yeah. I think it's quite, quite a low population. But it is um, the the Icelandic broadcaster, or UV, um, has... S- said basically it's uncertain as to whether Iceland will participate this year or not um, due to the Israel-Hamas war. Um, I guess there's been a lot of criticism from songwriters, from artists um, around participating in Eurovision this year um, due to Israel's participation. Um, And I think, is it they're going to make a joint uh, decision, the broadcaster and... um, There's also an online petition as well, an open letter from Eurovision artists. Um, I think the most notable person who signed it was uh, Lazara from France last year, um, signed the petition to basically not participate. 
and calls for Israel to be removed from the Eurovision Song Contest. It'll be interesting to see how it will play out because according to the EBU, Israel has not um, broken any broadcaster rights. And yeah, exactly. And I guess um, what's interesting for, for people to consider is that Russia was excluded from the contest after their, their invasion of Ukraine. Um because um, it, I think what the EBU um, said was that it would bring the contest yeah. into disrepute. A number of um, countries like Iceland, Norway, Finland, Sweden also refused to participate in the contest if Russia was to participate. And with um, the situation in between Israel and Hamas, we haven't really seen um, the same number or volume of countries calling for exclusion. Uh, so, and do you think that there's potential for that to happen yet? Do you think? I think it's too early to tell. I think if we closer to May, we will definitely find out a bit more from um, different broadcasters and see their response. And um, on another point, um, in regards to the Irish Eurovision entrant, Bambi Thug, who goes by they, them pronouns, they're non-binary. Um, there has been a lot of backlash online on Twitter from the far right um, criticising the song and criticising the fact that um, it's not our typical entrant and uh, yeah exactly and and, and that um, is, is definitely going to be interesting to see how, how Bambi Thug does this year uh, as, as an artist that is, is very and difficult, different. Sorry, apologies. Um, to to the type of music or artists that we normally, um, send. But, um, Martha, I guess you've told me of one of your favorite, um, artists from from last year, the runner up, um, Aria, yeah, Aria, from Finland. Um, with the song Cha Cha Cha, um, which. I think we're now going to play. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hope you enjoy. Um, so this is Cha 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 from Garia.
and welcome back to um, Paul Talk. So um, next up, we're going to talk a little bit about, so I guess, it, Martha, there's a lot of elections happening this year. Yeah. Um, um, not just in Ireland, not, just, not just in the EU. We, of course, have the US presidential election. Yeah. There's elections in India. There's elections in Taiwan. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Russian presidential yeah. election. I think it's set to happen in March. Am I- March 15th to 17th. And um, basically, the a presidential candidate must be at least 35 years old and be resident in Russia for at least 25 years and not have foreign citizenship or a residence permit in a foreign country, neither at the time of the election nor any time before. And um, in 2020, Vladimir Putin changed the rules to, like, before it used to be two consecutive terms. Now he can run for unlimited terms. Unlimited terms. He can run for as many terms as he chooses. And it's hard to see who will come up against him because there's not really much opposition because his opposition leader is in jail currently. And... um, a couple of weeks ago went missing from a Russian prison. They didn't know where he was for 72 hours to a week. They wow. did not know his whereabouts. Lawyers could not contact him. His family couldn't contact him. And, and ha- has he been contacted since? He has. He's been transferred to another prison in Siberia. Oh, in Siberia? Yeah. Okay. So um, it's a lot harder for his lawyers to contact him and transport there um again it's kind of tactics to try and stop alexei navalny from running for president president yeah which he's now barred because you cannot be jailed to run for political um political office in russia okay very interesting and do you i guess of course if if putin has no um political challengers it, it looks like um there won't be much um change in that yeah. context for the for the war um the in ukraine future as well um yeah there won't be any sort of um change in viewpoint in terms of uh, the war in ukraine and um it's interesting that navalny who's in prison um believes in uh ukraine should be its own independent country and we haven't really seen much movement from Vladimir Putin from his stance and there isn't much protest within Russia currently as to the rules because of the crackdown and protests Uh, anyone who's protested will be in jail for 15 years and it's harsh prison sentences for anyone who does um, oppose the regime Wow. Okay. So it it's it's um there's definitely an yeah. oppressive force in, in in Russia against against protesters. Um. So I guess do you have any kind of final insights for today and into political news? Any news story that you're you're particularly watching at the moment? Um. Not particularly, but it'll just be interesting to see how elections across Europe develop and in the United States, particularly because. Um, it seems that Donald Trump is going to win against Nikki Haley and be the Republican Party nomination. And it'll be interesting to see how 
the election will play out between Biden and whether Biden will gain enough support over his stance on the situation in Gaza and the potential threat of Iran as well. Um, there's speculation that Biden might have a few strikes against Iran and it'll just be interesting to see how it will all play out in the Middle East and whether Iran will become involved in the conflict as well as Yemen. Exactly. So there's a lot, a lot, um, um, of, there's a lot unfolding, I guess, in, in 2024 already, even though we're not um, yeah. a month in um, yet. But definitely, the U.S. presidential elections will be will be something to watch, and the likelihood of a Biden-Trump rematch. Um, but I guess to, to conclude today's show, um, since we're speaking for the Government and Politics Society. Um, we are selling hoodies at the moment. I <laughs> Martha, we're doing yeah. a plug at the moment. Um, they'll be available. Um, there'll be a link on the Instagram and within course group chats as well. So it'll be mostly through the Instagram bio. Absolutely, and I think they're available for the BSc Government of Political Science and the BA Politics. Um, they they you have a range of colors to choose from. I have not seen this much for. For course hoodies, but you can get them in pink, orange, blue, black. It kind of goes on and on. Yeah, whatever, whatever your hearts desire. Um, whatever colors you want. But um, I guess from a government and politics society perspective, we will hopefully have some um exciting events coming up this semester. Um, I guess yet to be announced for most of them, yeah. but but definitely keep an eye on our socials, particularly Instagram. Um, is it at GovPol? At UCC Govpol, I'm actually not 100% sure, but I think it's at um, UCC Govpol. Yeah, I think it's at UCC. We're great brand ambassadors. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's UCC Govpol. Yeah. Perfect. So definitely, definitely make sure to to keep updated. Um, and we're going to finish with um one more song. So we had the runner up of Eurovision 2023, and now we're going to have the winner is going to be Tattoo from um Lorene.
Good evening. It's two minutes past four in the studio and you're listening to My Life in a Suitcase. You're listening to Radio UCC 98.3 FM and I'm Manisha, your host from My Life in a Suitcase. Today, yet again, still bad news from Gaza. With all the war and genocide going on, and despite of all the appeals for ceasefire, still there is no news of ceasefire and every day thousands of children are losing their lives. Today, despite of all the progress in the world, women and girls in Afghanistan are still banned from going to school, going to universities, continuing their education, working or simply going outside even they cannot go to the market to buy some clothes or buy some some food or just just to just to have fun life has become totally dark place for women in afghanistan today despite of all the food that is scattered all around the world people in yemen are starving Despite of all the appeals of no war, no racism, of all the hard work so many amazing people are doing, still the world is not that place of peace that we want it to be. So sadly, yet another day, another Monday, with my life in a suitcase, and still we don't have good news. Today I'm going to start with with a song that I really love. It's called The Dust of Rusgan. Today um we have a guest in the show but uh but still um but um um she has some emergency. So we are going to listen to some songs and we'll wait if she will be available or not and if not then we will talk heart to heart and listen to some amazing music and maybe try to heal and try to think positive and bring some positivity in the world if that is still possible at this time and age so enjoy with me an amazing amazing song from a from a singer australian singer fred smith one of the songs that i like that he wrote about uruzgan afghanistan dust of uruzgan as to how i came to be here this is what i understand in this hospital in germany from the dust of uruzgan Just bought a new car When you joined the 1st Battalion Of the Big One RAR We were next up for deployment Into South Afghanistan To combat the insurgents The dust of Uruzgan It took seven months of training Just to get into the joint There were push-ups and procedures And there was death by PowerPoint Then the RSO and I course In Ali Al Salam But nothing can prepare For the dust of Uruzgan Me and Benny sat together Flying into Kandahar And we stuck back on our near beers In the Camp Baker bar We were up at 05.30 We were on the Herkin out And in 20 flying minutes We were in the Tarrant Cout We shook hands as the boys ripped out From MRTF1 Pretty soon we're out patrolling In the Afghan summer sun Walking through the green zone 
to the star in my hand Buddy, I'm a-chafing through the dust of Ura's gang Chora, working 14 hours a day A mentor and a Kandak from the Afghan 4th Brigade Down through the Urbaluchi into eastern Darfshan Working under open skies in the dust of Uruzgan It's a long, long way from Townsville, not like any place you've seen Suddenly you're walking through the 14th century Women under burkas, tribal warlords rule the land Full of goats and huts and jingle trucks as the dust of Uruzgan and the education minister can neither read nor write And the minister for women runs a knock shop there at night And they've been fighting there forever over water, food and land Murdering each other in the dust of Uruz Yeah, there's nothing about the province that's remotely fair or just But worse than the corruption is the endless bloody dust Fine as talcum powder on the ground and in the air and it gets into your eyes, and it gets into your hair. And it gets into your weapon, and it gets into your boots. And when the bureaucrats all show up here, it gets into their suits. And it gets in the machinery, and it foils every plan. Well, there's something quite symbolic about the dust of Uruz Still, the people can be gracious, and they're courteous and smart. And when the children look into your eyes, they walk into your heart. Face each day with courage and each year without a plan. Beyond scratching for survival in the dust of Uruz game. But the Taliban are ruthless, keep the people terrorised. With roadside bombs and hangings and leaving letters in the night. And they have no useful vision for the children of this land. But to keep them praying on their knees in the dust of Uruz game. Saturday morning when the two shop made a call on a compound of interest to the east of Copmashall. We had some information, they were building IEDs, so we cordoned and we searched it in accord with SOPs. I was on the west flank picket, propped there with Ben, better keep a watchful eye out while the other blokes went in. We knew the signs of danger from the TTPs we'd learned But the Nationals were moving back and forth without concern We'd been static there for hours when I shifted slightly back My foot tripped an AP mine and everything went black I woke up on a gurney, flat out on my back I Had to ask him seven times just to get the facts That I lived to tell his story through a simple twist of fate the main charge lay ten feet away from the pressure plate You see the mine was linked by debt cord to a big charge laid by hand Hidden under Benny by the dust of Uruzgan I was a Queensland champ tie boxer, now I look south of my knee And all I see is bed sheets where my right foot used to be Benny's dead and buried underneath Australian sand But his spirit's out there wandering through the dust Dust of Earth's game.
Welcome back. The song that you were just listening, I've played this song many times in the show. It's called The Dust of Rosgan. And Fred, an Australian folk singer, he has a book by the same name as well. Fred Smith writes songs. Some of them are sad. Some of them are funny. Some of them are sad and funny. Some of them are quite serious. They have melodious and stories you can remember that stay with you and keep you company. Fred's song reflect the world that he has seen in what so far has been a messy and interesting life. He was a um, subject of an Australian story documentary featured about his experiences in Afghanistan, that's my country. His book, The Dust of Erzgan, was published by Alan and Unwin. The song describes his, his experience, especially um, he... He met an Australian soldier that who lost his friend um, who, was, who was killed in Erzgan in an attack and he himself has have lost his legs and after listening to the, to his life story and to what he described in the war Fred wrote this song and the song became pretty famous and he has played it many many times sometimes um with the same tone of music that you just heard and sometimes with some Afghan music instruments. But in any form, the song is beautiful because it shows us the other side of war. War in any form is ugly, warm for anyone and everyone who is around it. It is distressful and heartbreaking. Me, um, who have who has seen war all my life i was i was born in war and i was raised in war and i ran away from war twice i can tell you from experience that war is nothing fun it is not even like there is you can never imagine how ugly war is unless until you are in it uh, or you are the victim of it and believe me, as a friend on this show said once, that there are no heroes in the war. There are all just victims and there are villains. Let's listen to another song for Women, Life, Liberty and we will be back after a few minutes. For the thrill and the fear of getting caught kissing For my sister, my brother, and unity For all the times we tried to change their minds and stale beliefs For the loss of pride 
for poverty For the dream of just a normal life for you and me For all the children who are starving for a loaf of bread For the greed of politics and all the lies they spread For all the mass polluted air we breathe For all the litter in the streets and all the dying trees For all the animals who suffer from elimination For all the cats and dogs who love us without no conditions For all the tears that seem to never end For all the images that keep on turning in our heads For a simple smile to last a little while For the future generations fighting for Welcome back. We just were able to make contact with our guest today, so I didn't waste more time with the music. And we're we're back in the studio. Um, uh, you're listening to My Life in a Suitcase. This is Radio UCC 98.3 FM. And today with me on a phone call is Murray Mulholland. She is originally from Belfast, and she's the CEO of West Cork Beacon, which is a domestic and sexual violence support service in West Cork. This organization was established over 20 years ago and the organization has grown under Marie's guidance and expanded its services to women, children and young people living with domestic abuse and now recently they have introduced a new sexual violence community support service for women, men and for young people 40 years and over. So without wasting time, let's continue our let, let's start our, our interview hi marie how are you hi Melissa. i'm so sorry for the delay and getting back to you no problem at all today. Yeah. <laughs> no problem at all we know you're very you're you're very busy yeah, but not too busy that I can't talk to you, Manisa. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. We really, really appreciate that. So I'm not going to waste, you know, like any time and we'll just direct, go at it. So, um, Marie, um, how did it all begin? How did West Cork Beacon started? Well, it's I've been here 12 years out of the over 20 years that it's been here. And it was very much a community initiative. Um, my understanding, I've met some of the original founders and it was local women who realized that there was an issue and that there was no supports for women who were experiencing domestic abuse. And they came together. It was a women's group that came together. Um, and they did it on a voluntary basis for a little while. And then they got some funding. Um, and they had a part-time worker. And then they got an office. And, and basically, it's like, you know, there's little organic steps one by one. And they grow incrementally until eventually they had got themselves a a service with a couple of uh, workers, um, some admin, and when I took over in 2012, it was it was almost a part-time service. It was there was like two staff, and there was um, one day a week we had, there was a helpline, um, mm. and now we're five days a week. The helpline is nine to five every day. We have uh, a complement of six six actual support staff, two admin staff. Um, and we have a lot of other kind of projects as well. So, for instance, we have a safe house for anyone who's at risk of homelessness because of domestic abuse. Um, mm. We have a special project for children who have witnessed or experienced domestic abuse in the home and who have been negatively impacted on it um, by it. So we have a therapeutic support program for them. We work with mum and then we have special child therapists who are, they don't work for us, we pay them, but they, they, they work specifically with the 
children. They give the children a safe space in which to talk about their experiences. Um, we sometimes do support groups mm -hmm. so for women who have exited domestic violence and are now kind of thinking, okay, what do I do next? How do I put my life together? How do I go forward from here as a single parent? So we would do support, support work with them. And then in terms of women who ring us who are in crisis, we provide safety planning. We do court accompaniment. We take yeah. them, if they decide that they want to go to court for protection orders, we will go to court, court with them. We'll accompany them on that whole journey because it's very nerve-wracking and it's very anxiety-making. But to get the orders that they need to stay safe at home, um, we'll go to the guard with them when they make their statements. We'll negotiate with the courts, you know, the clerk services um, uh, around that as well. And we provide, like, we were, we're here, we'll, we'll see a woman one-to-one. -one. We have a little, lovely little client room. She wants to just come and talk. And, and for many women, it's, a, it's about saying it for the first time, that this is what's going on in their lives, and, and having the courage to tell somebody about that. And so what we do, the most important thing we do, is to listen, to listen without judgment, and to let that woman know that we believe her. That's the most important thing we can do. And then last, uh, last autumn, just um, at the end of the autumn there, we launched our new sexual violence service, and that's for women and men, and for young people 14 years upwards. That's for anyone who's suffered um, sexual abuse or rape or traumatic childhood abuse, sexual abuse. That all seems, that all sounds really extraordinary and it is not everyday work. It's not easy work. Um, it is nerve wracking both for the people who are the victims and for you who are helping them. So in the, in the past many, many years that you've been part of this initiative, um, what are the differences that you have seen in, in domestic and sexual violence? How was it before and is it the same now or has it changed some forms? It's an interesting question, Anissa, because I just had someone ask me this today, a journalist, a local journalist who'd been looking at the, um, he'd been looking at the, uh, the, the Garda uh, statistics for domestic abuse. And they've increased right across Cork. The, the incidents, the, the number of call-outs to the guards have increased in every part of Cork in the city, in North Cork and in West Cork. And they asked me that I think there was more domestic abuse as a result. And I think it's a... What I'm seeing over the last few years is a combination of, of different factors and changes that have taken place. And I think one of the most important changes, which is very positive, is that more people are aware of domestic abuse. That you know, the, the government has had television and media campaigns and newspaper ads, and and people are more aware that it is a serious issue, and that it needs to be dealt with seriously. The guards take it more seriously. Certainly, from when I started, the guards take it much more seriously. Um, they now have a um, an obligation that they, when someone is called and a guard is called out to a house where there's been a domestic incident, as it's called, um, and say, you know, they're they're there, and it's very much in the in the midst of the chaos and the emotions and and the turmoil. Often, you'll find that it's, that's not the best time sometimes for a woman mm -hmm. to to say, um, I, I want to come with you, or I want to make a statement, or she may feel under pressure because the abuser's still in the house to say nothing. So what the guards do on every call is that they will go back the next day. Certainly within, they have to go back to three to seven days. Um, and they will check on that woman and they will make sure and, and see if she's feeling differently. 
if she'd like to do something about it, if she would like other help. And often, here in West Cork, we will give the woman our number here uh, and make sure that she knows that we're here and that we're available to her as well. Um, so that's changed. And the understanding that the guards have about domestic abuse has changed. I mean, I can remember when I came here 12 years ago, I was told by one colleague that there that a woman had presented at the guard station with a black eye. Uh, and that um, the guard on duty said, what did you do to make him do that to you? Oh. By victim blaming, right? Yeah. He wouldn't get that now. He wouldn't get that now. And, um, and there's, I think there's more information. It's also, there's more information publicly available about what domestic abuse is and what sexual abuse is. There is more, and I think what the, all of that has done is it started to take the stigma mm. out of domestic abuse for the victim because the victim always felt too ashamed or too afraid of what would be said or how it would be perceived. And I think that is, it's not gone, don't get me wrong, it's not gone, but it has, little by little, that stigma has started to reduce. And it's the perpetrator, it's the abuser who should be ashamed, who should be stigmatised. And it's starting, just the balance is starting to change a little in that regard as well. And because of that, more people are reporting and looking for support from services like ours. And I think that's the changes that I've seen. I mean, I've seen our statistics. Oh, my gosh. When I first took over, I think we had about, you know, I think 700, 800 calls in a year. Now we're 2,500, nearly 3,000 calls a year. And that's not necessarily because there is more domestic abuse. It's because people know that what is happening to them is abusive and they've mm. been you know, they've been encouraged and they're being supported to call it what it is and to do something about it. Definitely awareness is so important in such cases and I'm glad Absolutely. that in the hard work that has been done in so many past years that is now paying back and it in, in a positive way. Um, I'm sure that in the past also the cases were maybe more than what we observe now, but because people were like victims were more ashamed to come forward or there was no proper support, no proper awareness. And as you said, victim shaming, it's and it is like um, as I as I myself, I come from a society where when when domestic violence is present it is always the person who is the victim is blamed and said well you speak too much you speak too loud you might have made him upset you might have made him that and that causes like the person to always think that it is me who is doing something really wrong otherwise the like the the person who is hurting me is 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 very nice and good but it is i am the one at fault so it's very important to have that awareness also um, absolutely yeah absolutely uh, but also that's that's still that still goes on you know you, you know uh, we I mean, we all have you know what's really what's really changed the other thing that's really changed when he says that we have we have language for it now as well you know mm -hmm. what you've just described where the, the victim feels that they're to blame because yeah. they're made to feel to blame by the, by the abuser you know that's gas we call that gaslighting definitely you know, yeah. that's you know when you're made to feel that you're responsible for how they for why they react the way they do um, it's all your fault, you're a bad wife, you're a poor mother, you're a lousy cook, all those things, you know, mm. uh, you, you know that, that, that are said to women to make them feel small, to make them feel um, confident, to make them feel like they, it's, it's their fault. Definitely. And have you seen if the, if the form of domestic violence or the age of domestic violence or sexual violence has changed as well, or is it the same, still the same? Um. 
certainly um, a couple of years ago, very recently actually, in the last two or three years, the um, the, the, the offence of coercive control mm-hmm. um, was recognised here um, and legislated for and is recognised in the courts. And coercive control was a tough one, but it was actually, it, it was the foundation of what, of what a lot of us in the domestic violence services were seeing, is that most people, Kind of when they think of domestic abuse, domestic violence, they think, oh, he's punching her, he's kicking her, black eyes, broken nose, you know, uh, bruised ribs. Actually, it's not, okay? That certainly goes on, but it's not. It's the really insidious uh, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial control, sexual coercion um, in a relationship is, is, that, is what does the deepest damage and the damage that is most unseen. And so, for instance, let me give you an example. Uh, So if a woman, like we've had cases where women are not allowed to go out to work because if she goes out to work, then she's seen as being independent. The idea is to keep her absolutely where she where you know in prison where she can be watched at home. She's not allowed out. There may be, um, she's not allowed to use the car particularly in a rural area like this, she won't be allowed to use the car. The petrol will be measured. If she's gone further than the local shop or to get or the local supermarket, you know, that will be measured. They'll know that she's gone further than that. Um, they won't have uh, control over any finances in the home. Um, they will be told what they can buy for food. They will be told uh, what food is to be cooked. They will be told how much they can eat. Uh, I've just recently come across an incident where um, a young woman was told by her partner, she's not even married to, that um, she's not to eat that much and that he's going to watch the food that she eats from now on to make sure that she doesn't eat any more than he wants her to eat. So there's things like that. So that that's the kind of stuff that, you know, is about, that's coercive control. That's living in a in an emotional um Fail. Like a, you may as well be a prisoner, you know, yeah. uh, because you have you are completely controlled, you are completely confined, um, and so that has become that uh, has been introduced into law the the, the offensive course of control, and they are really difficult cases. I mean, I I mean, I've known cases where women who were pregnant were locked in the bathroom and not allowed to come out, um, or women who were pregnant who were not allowed to go to the bathroom. God. Things like that. So, uh, so that's 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 one of the things that has become more obvious. People never realise the extent of that. That's the invisible stuff that goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, definitely. Um, what happened? Like, uh, what uh, what pushed your organisation to involve men and children over fourteen um, as well, part of victims? Yeah, it's an interesting. It's a very new. It's a very new initiative for us. Um, and when we set up the sexual violence service, that actually came about as a result of a piece of research that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, two pieces of research that was done here in West Cork that we were involved with. We had commissioned, which was we knew that sexual uh, violence often occurred within domestically abusive relationships, women feeling that they had no control over whether or not they had sex with their partner. They were, you know, they were coerced into having sex. And some were, and, and women were saying things like, I have to do it because if I don't do it, it'll be worse. 
if I don't do it. Um, so we knew that, that that happened. But when we did some research, we realised that there, West Cork, where, where I am now in my office in Bantry, is almost two hours' drive to the city. So the nearest um, sexual violence support service would be Cork Sexual Violence Centre, two hours away. Um, and the problem is it's a long journey. It's a long journey if you've just been traumatised by sexual assault. Uh, it's an even longer journey if you have to do it by public transport because you don't have access to a car. Um, and you don't and even to know where to go and what to do about it. So all of that was showing up in the research that people weren't um, getting the support because A, it was too far away, B, it was very inaccessible, and C, they just didn't know where to go or what to do about it. So that's why we started looking at it. Could we do this? Would this be something that we could do? And we also realised that in the second piece of research that men too have been and and still are victims of sexual abuse. Now that sexual abuse is most often by other men, obviously mm-hmm. when they were children or in their youth uh, or, or whatever. But so it's so we thought, well, you know, when you're a victim of sexual abuse, it doesn't really matter what your gender is. The trauma still there. The trauma's the same for everybody. Um, and also for the, the interesting thing is about the 14 years and upwards, that was the one that made me feel most nervous because we had never directly provided a service for people that young. And as you know yourself, working with young people, it's, it's very specialised and it takes a, a certain amount of expertise. And, um, and you know, there's a language around it. There's a, there's a whole way of, of kind of trying to encourage young people to talk. And... Um, but it was clear, and it has been clear for some time, that there is a lot of um, pornography mm-hmm. through social media. There's a lot of revenge pornography through social media amongst teenagers. There's a lot of non-consensual sex amongst young people. Um, teenagers, in fact, that their knowledge of consent and their knowledge of what is actually sex sometimes is questionable as well. Yeah. So, and you know, the schools have been t- talking about it. Parents have been concerned about it. Different youth organisations have been trying to address it. So we thought that we would try and at least give them a service. Once they're under 14, then it's just let the child and family agency be responsible. But from 14 years upwards, we can provide an independent support service for them as well within the kind of confines of child protection, you know, obligations, etc. But that's that's one of the, the areas that, that is new to us. It's one of the areas. But we are extremely fortunate, Melissa. Um, we got a, 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 a sexual violence worker here who was trained and worked for several years in Dublin New Crisis Centre, and she is a therapist herself. So she's a real expert here, and she's very experienced. So I feel a lot more confident now that we've got someone who really yeah. knows this work and knows this area um, very, very well and can give the kind of response that's ne- needed for whoever you know gets in touch with us. And the, that is really great, and it is so amazing that you have started this service, because um, I, I, uh, after we talked uh, about about this issue yesterday, we were talking about this, and I went online and I was searching about um, like how is how is it possible that the amount of sexual violence and domestic violence between partners or girlfriend boyfriend have increased among youth, and I was shocked to see how many games are out there that are easily available on phones, on computers, on on devices, 
that are just promoting um, violence, they're promoting sexual violence, they're promoting women just as sexual objects, they're, they're promoting um, uh, any type of violence, but especially like the game just starts like a man has hit her, his partner and left her with her baby outside and then her life starts from there and then the teenager or the kid who is playing they have to decide what should she be doing you know and they'll yeah, be getting coins and things like that so that is kind of making it normalized you know it is oh it's okay absolutely and the other and the other thing Manisa is that it's the prevalence and the dominance dominance of, of some social influencers who are also who have you know, highly misogynistic attitudes towards women. Look at the Andrew Tate phenomenon amongst mm -hmm. young boys right across Western Europe, actually, at this stage. And, I mean, he, his misogyny is renowned. He is sexually trafficking women. He's uh, got uh, allegations of, of several allegations of rape against mm -hmm. him. And he talks online about women like they are some kind of animal, you know, that he's found in the street. Um, you know, they are to be kind of, you know, they're to be whipped into shape. You know, women are to be whipped into shape. They're only there for his gratification and they should only be there for any, you know, all males gratification. And young men are listening to this. Young teenage adolescent men are enthralled by this guy. And it's just, his attitude is very prevalent amongst a certain cohort of, of young adolescent men. And needless to say, not only is he misogynistic, he's also homophobic. So God mm. help the lads that are in any way gay that have and are terrified of coming out to their friends um, in, in their own peer group. So it's, there's, a, there's a, a wave of this. There's a, a, a kind of um, a core of this that is, is very prevalent at the minute. And that's what we've got to try and counteract through education, through awareness, through information given, and through and through providing different types of role models, especially mm -hmm. for I think for young men and for young women. Definitely, definitely, and and especially like the beauty industry is also not doing any 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 not showing any kindness or on these. You know, like it's just now the image of a woman. They're trying really really hard. It's just. You know, it's it's just boob jobs, ass jobs, and just lip filler. So when you look at a woman, all you can see is just three three things in a woman that are you know just that are like like just like a sex object. You you like they they just want they just want like they just walk in blow up dolls. That's what yeah, they are these days. You know, yeah, and definitely. What, and that's what the industry wants, and that's what men like Andrew Tate believe women should be. And it's um. It's very, I think, it's very disappointing, you know, in the sense that, you know, when we see we've come such a long way, you know, in terms of, yeah. of, of equality in so many other respects, and then this kind of attitude starts to, you know, creep into daily life and, and, to, and to into the culture, it's really, really quite disappointing. Definitely, definitely. It kind of uh, vanishes the idea of uh, of an independent, intelligent uh, woman with ideas is just a woman who should always be available just for one purpose. And if not, then whatever else she says, it is just unimportant and not, 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 not like not good enough to hear to or something, you know. So um, yeah. definitely. So so this is a very, very good service and it is what's much needed at this time. And uh, I think we all of us as you know like like as 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 a nation we should try to be a uh, part of such initiatives and we should try to create awareness as much as we can. 
So, um, um, what um, have you observed any like any, any effects of the service that you're providing? Like the people you have helped, have you seen the differences, the 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 good stories, the result of this? Oh yeah, I mean, there's always you know this. That's what keeps you going, Melissa. You know, mm -hmm. that's the. Uh, that's what, you know, kind of affirms you in, in the knowledge that what you're, you're doing something right. You're doing something that's worthy, that's something that is valuable to women uh, who, who need you. And, of course, yeah, you know, and I've seen women. Like, I know of one woman, quite a few, several children, you know, in a very abusive relationship, which is very physically abusive as well. Um, and once we'd helped her get out of that relationship and get protection, um... And 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 she came to the support group and she got a lot more confidence and all of that. She decided to go back to college um, because she kind of she got you know she finished school as early as she could. Started having children very early. She went back to college. She retrained and now she's working uh, as a manager in an uh, she's an office manager now uh, in a full time post. Yeah, and has done exceptionally well. We've got another woman who we um, yeah, I mean we've had. I mean, I suppose the age range is just, it starts from like 20 right through to, like, I think the oldest woman we've ever had is about 76. Um, and I think it is harder for older women to make a to make a change. But then sometimes there's like a little light bulb that goes on where I think as they do get older, they say like, you know, I've only got a few years left. Dear God, let me try and live it without living in fear, you know, and... Um, and I think, and so we get that, we get that. I, mean, I know one woman who is very dear to our hearts in here, yeah, and um, she left a relationship, at, you know, a 35-year relationship. Um, she came to us and we put her in the safe house. And in the safe house, she had time to think. And I, and she should explain maybe a little bit about the difference between a safe house and a refuge. A refuge is 24-7, and it, it's staffed 24-7. Um, and it tends to be for women who are very high risk, uh, in the sense that their their abusers, you know, will pursue them. So they need to go somewhere that is very confidential, that is very hidden, and it's usually quite a bit away from where they've normally lived. Um, uh, a safe house is slightly different. A safe house is not staffed. Um, it is a confidential place uh, in terms of where it is, but it is just a small house. It might look like a very ordinary house on a very ordinary street. Um, and the idea is that so it's for women who maybe not so much high risk, but low to what we call low to medium risk. They mm. need to get away. They need to be able to just be somewhere they feel safe, where their their every day is not being patrolled or controlled, and they can start to think for themselves, and they can get their children out of the, the situation that they're living in, and they have time to think about what do I want to do with my life. How do I want to approach this? How do I change this? And we will provide a worker who will go and see them maybe once a week, twice, two or three times a month, and talk to them about a car plan. What would you like to do? You know, how do you how do you want to proceed from here? Because the decision has to be theirs. We don't tell them what to do. Because it's really important for women who are being controlled all the time to actually, for the first time, have some control over their own lives and their own decisions. So that's absolutely key to their empowerment. And uh, so a safe house is somewhere where really they can just relax for a little while, chill yeah. out. 
not have to keep looking over their shoulder, not worry about who's coming to him coming home from what and through the door or whatever and what kind of mood he's going to be in. But they can chill out, they can cook whatever they want, they can feed the children, you know, whenever they want. Um, and they can have a think about what they want to do and they can feel safe for a little way and start to think about themselves and about their children and not have to worry about what's going to happen next when he comes home. So it's, it's, it can be like that. It can also be for women who are, uh, they have left, uh, but there's nowhere else to go. And if the safe house is free, because it is, we only do have the one safe house, um, you know, and there may already be somebody there. But if there isn't, then hopefully we can get them somewhere safe to stay for a little while anyway. And um, so that safe house is a really important, it's a really important project for us because we only started to be able to offer that two or three years ago. Um, and we knew that there was a need for it big time in West Cork because the refuge um, for Cork, there's one refuge for Cork it's in the city um, mm -hmm. and it only takes six, it only has enough space for six families. This is in the biggest county in Ireland. Now, all that is about to change. Finally, the new, uh, our new Minister for Justice has, she has prioritised um, the building of refuges um, and Cork is about to get a much bigger refuge. It's also going to get a refuge in North Cork and I'm delighted to say it's going to get a refuge in West Cork as well. So those things, it's going to increase the supports and the services that will be available for the women and children that we work with. That that is amazing because the, the the refuge that is present right now is not enough, um, especially seeing the number of cases that are increasing in the number of reports that you are getting. So definitely that is not enough, and it and and it doesn't meet the challenges that you see. Are there any any like um, because I'm not very much aware of the law around it. Are there any punishments for the for the for the people who are causing this much harm and trauma to others? Oh God, Melissa! I wish. <laughs> um, all there, what there is at the moment is we have um, safety orders or protection orders. So the the that's a, a, a temporary measure. It, it, when it, when if 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 there's abuse going on at home, a woman can get either a safety or protection order. One's temporary, one's more one's more long lasting, and. Um, that's where she's going to stay in the home with her children and it's to prevent him from making any further threats of violence or attacks or anything that would um, intimidate um, his partner, okay? Yep. And if he does do something while that order is on him, then he can be brought to court court for what they for call a breach of the order. Now, the problem here is that I know... Our experience here is that I've, we've seen men breach these orders umpteen times. Umpteen. I mean, I've seen a guy, there was a guy who went to, a, a client of ours who went to court there recently for the fourth breach, for four breaches of the order, you know. Um, this is the, the third time that he's had four breaches of the order and he finally went to jail for six months. But it takes a lot before a judge will put them in jail. Um, so... Then there's the a barring order, and a barring order is is probably even is probably the most severe of it all. Um, a barring order means that the abuser has to leave the family home mm -hmm. and must not be within a certain you know must not come near, must not um, harass, must not stalk, must not um, in any way try to interfere with the life of the the mother and the children. 
So, for instance, and so if he wants to see his children, he has to go to court for an access order to be able to see his children. So he can't just rock up to the school and say, oh, I'm Mary's daddy and I'm here to take her home. He can't do that anymore unless there's permission from the court to do that or there's an access order. Um, but he can't go near the family home unless the court says that, say, for instance, if he is going to pick up his children for to see them for the day, he has to go at a certain time. He may, uh, he must arrive at a certain time. He must bring the children back at a certain time. Apart from that, he's not allowed to go into the family home. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to get a barring order. It takes a lot to get a barring order, just in terms of fulfilling the criteria for the court. And I'd like to see a lot more of them because, Lisa, if there was barring orders, we wouldn't have so many women and children homeless from domestic violence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're having to leave home in order to stay safe. Whereas if there was more barring orders given out, then the abuser would have to leave and the mother and the children would at least be in a home with a roof over their head. It's yeah. not easy. I mean, the courts, I think certainly we are, we have the best minister for justice in terms of domestic and sexual violence understanding. This is the best I've ever seen. Minister Helen McEntee has certainly taken this very seriously and she is dedicated to improving the situation for victims. Um, but the courts need a really good shake-up. They still need a good... They're, they're still very much, you know, kind of entrenched in a, in, a, in a particular way of thinking, in a particular way of working. It's very bureaucratic. It's not victim-centred. Um, it doesn't always understand trauma. In fact, it rarely... The courts rarely understand trauma. Um, and and so there's, there's a lot of work to be done at that, at the judicial end of things. Definitely, there needs to be loads of changes in laws and, and the punishments because the more severe the punishments are, we will be seeing less of these cases because people will be, you know, thinking twice before committing such a crime if the punishment is more severe. Yes, so there's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. And, it should, you know, it should be used more often or it should be reconsidered as the hard best to make abusers, you know, to, to make abusers think twice before they, because I've seen it as well all, all too often, and, and I know judges have seen it and so have the guards. There are a lot of abusers out there who think that the law doesn't apply to them. Even mm -hmm. in the courtroom, they don't think the law applies. There's an arrogance and a sense of an entitlement. How dare you come between me and my wife and my children? They belong to me, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you see it quite a lot, actually. That is heartbreaking, and your your job and and the job of your team must be so so difficult because you see trauma of other people every day. How do you and your team deal with all that trauma, and how do you keep yourself safe from you know like all that pain that you're observing on daily basis and trying to solve? Well, um, first of all, the team is absolutely brilliant at what they do. They're highly experienced. They're very expert. Um, and they, they've been doing the job for a very long time. Um, and, I, I mean, really, their, their skill set is, is, is unbelievable. But also, the, there's been a lot of training done amongst the staff here in trauma mm -hmm. and to, under, to better understand trauma. So we're always looking for more advanced training, more information on trauma so that we can, first of all, that we can understand what trauma does to victims, and secondly, that we're also looking at the, the, the traumatic impact in terms of, as a workforce, 
on, on that. Um, all of my staff, all of my support staff, um, have, they all see counsellors once a month. They, they have, and that's part of what they provide as an employer because what they're seeing, sometimes they just need to unload that somewhere else uh, with a counsellor. So it's not it's not like um you know there'd be supervision you know in terms of management in terms of you know here's your workload for the day how you dealing with that how's it going yeah. this is once a month they have a set time that they go it's paid for by the service here um and they see a counsellor themselves once a month just to have a safe space uh, and somewhere they can unload some of their own emotional responses to what's going on so that's really quite important it's really very very important. You know, um, and I would, ha- I would ha- see an external counsellor as well. Just recently started to do that, but for me, it's always been about like we do all of us get. I suppose all of us we get a real lift out of seeing women really kind of coming into their own and into their own power. That is, there's nothing, there's nothing that surpasses that. You know, yeah. that like seeing a woman who's been a victim come into her own power and to be able to kind of continue with the life that she wants to lead with her children safely that's there's nothing beats it really nothing beats it um but also like for me what i do is i, I bird watch i'm a bird watcher <laughs> that that's amazing <laughs> and i love watching it makes me feel so calm and easily <laughs> i love i love getting out on, on a maybe a weekend or on a day off and just going out with a pair of binoculars and like it's west car it's beautiful you know and the opportunities for bird watching are really good, but I just find it really, even if it's just sitting watching the birds in my garden on the feeders, I find it really, really calming. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So, 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 so that, that's a really good way to keep, keep yourself calm and heal with all that. Yeah. That's perfect. That's perfect. Now, um, the last question, because we're really running out of the time, and that's like, um, this is a job that all of us should be doing any and like any way that is possible, we all should be paying our part to the society in helping those in need. So, how can we, as society, help you? How, how can we contribute in your cause um, in helping others? Some very practical things. If you know of anyone who is living with abuse, right? Um, the most important thing you can do is listen without judgment. If they decide to talk to you. If, if they haven't spoken to you about it, then you then please try and find a way, a sensitive way, to let them know that you are available and that you will that you will be there for them, whatever they need. Let them know that. And then, secondly, if they do talk, make sure that they get the information about whatever is the nearest domestic violence support service to them, because the most important thing that people can do is to make it easier for those that are being abused, that are victims, to talk about that abuse and to get the help that they need. So make it easy for them to talk to you. Let them know that you're willing to support them, whatever they need. Uh, and it can be very hard. Don't get me wrong. It's very hard sometimes to support someone you know is in an abusive relationship because you know that statistics show that there, you know, there can be up to 35 incidents of domestic abuse before a woman takes action, before she does anything. So it's very hard to watch someone you love or care about be in an abusive relationship and continue to be in an abusive relationship. And and the, the I suppose the, the impetus would be that, oh, it's just to say, oh, come on, Mary, you need to, come on, you need to do something now, come on me, we need to, you need to get away, come on me, get in the car and that. That's not what they need to hear. What they need to hear is, look, Mary, whenever you're ready, I'm here for you. If you want to talk about it, 
that I'm here for you. If you don't want to talk about it, but you do want to talk to someone else about it, I will get you the help that you need whenever you need it. That's what you need to do. And it's sometimes hard to watch people that you love in very challenging, difficult, and possibly violent situations. But it's that's it, it's holding that discipline not to make judgments and not to make decisions for them. Let them make their own decisions when they're ready. Thank you so much, Marie. Thank you so much for being with us on the show. Um, um, it's 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 a privilege it's a privilege for me to have you on the show and we have discussed um such an important topic it is a much needed topic it is something that um we all have seen we have observed either in our homes or in somebody else's home and it is something uh -huh. which is very very important to be reported to get help with to, and especially as a woman or man or or a young person to leave your abuser, get muster up that courage and start a new life. It is really, really important. And now mm, that you have come on our show, uh, they know that there are places like that available. There is help. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Manisa. Thank you for having me. Manisa, can I just give out the phone number for our service? Yes, definitely, please listening. do. Definitely, yeah, and please. It doesn't matter if they're not in West Court. If they want to ring here, uh, we can always put them in touch with a service that's nearer to them. But our number here is 027-53847. And we're open Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. There'll always be somebody to talk to. 027-53847. And if they want to search online to find you, uh, is there a website? Yes, there is. And the website is probably going to change its name soon. But at the moment, it's www.westcorkwomensproject.ie, www.westcorkwomensproject.ie. And we're also on Facebook as well as Westcourt Women Against Violence, um, now known as Westcourt Beacon. We just literally changed our names recently, our name recently because it's easier. Say West Cork Beacon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, we want to, uh, importantly, want to change the name because Beacon is an important, uh, because there's a, a, a beacon, a, a Baltimore beacon here in West Cork, and Beacon is something that throws out light in the darkness Definitely. and shows people the way. And so we thought, yeah, that's a good name for us. That's what we do. <laughs> Definitely. That is actually what you're doing, and you have uh, shown light on so many places, sh shown, sh shown light to so many people. And they have started their new lives. And those amazing success stories are actually something I think to really be proud of. And I hope that there would be more awareness around this topic. And hopefully in the coming future, we will see less domestic violence, less sexual violence, more understanding, more accepting each other. And, you know, more awareness yes, about... With you on that one, Melissa. Definitely with you on that one. <laughs> thank you so much marie so and and if anybody um was not able to catch the number or the or the address you can always write to us and e email us to radio ucc and we will get you in touch and send you the links or the numbers of the required um required resources that is related to west Cork beacon thank you so 